This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to episode 66 of Equalizer Podcast. I'm Chelsea Bush. With me is Claire Watkins. And guess what, guys? U.S. is going to the semifinals. They won 2-1 over France. It was kind of, it was the big game we were, we've all been waiting for. But Claire, do you think it lived up to the hype? Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, it was a very even game. Um, the fans were very loud. Yeah, I think, yes, it did live up to the hype. Um, I mean, obviously, I mean, the craziest thing about that game really has to do with sort of the the social hoopla surrounding um, one particular player the week before and then having her show up and score a brace um, is a moment rare in sports. Um, so yeah, so what Megan Rapino did was incredible. Um, the soccer game itself, I think, was fine. Um, the U.S. defended for their lives, and they got away with it, and they're on to the semifinals. Yeah, the, Dan Laletta, who is not here with us because he's in France now, he was at that game, asked me, messaged me afterwards, and asked what I thought about it, and I said, I think at the time I was about to drive home, so I was like, I'll give you a quick thoughts, and I'll, I'll expound on it later, and I said, good but not great. And, and I kind of, after letting it all sink in, I, I kind of stick by that. It was interesting to me that the U.S. were the ones in the who were pinned back in their own half more often than not, catching the other team in uh, on the counter in transition. Like, that. that is a position they're not used to. That's a position they usually force other teams into. And, I mean, I think part of it was because it, France absolutely dominated the midfield and I think we, we've got to talk about Ellis's decision to to bench Lindsay Horan right right um because we all kind of thought she was being saved for this game and then she wasn't till you know late in the second half uh the subs were a little bit earlier in this game than the previous one thank goodness but I think you really and and, and I think that and I think also part of uh Part of the reason, I think this was a, a choice. I think they're so afraid of getting exposed in transition and they know they're weak on that, that they were willing to to give up a little bit of ground and, and just kind of bend but not break. Well, they, um, they scored early, which I don't actually think even they were expecting. They got that early set piece goal and that really set the tone for the rest of the match. Um, and when they went up to nothing um, early in the second half... I think, I mean, we all know what happened. Uh, Jill Ellis signaled for the five, uh, the five four one, and but the only pro- the problem with that was that she hadn't set up her starting eleven to be more defensive, to be more possessive. She um, benched her in. Uh, you know, I think that Jill Ellis really thinks that she's got fourteen or fifteen players who all could equally help out. Um, in a starting 11 in the World Cup. And she's not entirely wrong about that. But when you're trying to, you know, hold off a team like France, it became clear at some point that maybe Rose Lavelle wasn't the best player to do that. She had kind of a rough game, particularly a rough second half. She Um, very much did, yeah. Yeah, and, and so some of those choices went against the actual formational shift that they made. 
And then ultimately, it just kind of turned out not to matter because France had a little bit of bad luck. Um, Julie Ertz, Alyssa Nair, Abby Dahlkemper, and Becky Sauerbrunn all had incredible matches, and it worked. Um, I don't think it was some massive feat of soccer playing that um, was significantly elevated from what we've seen in the past, but I just think that they were focused. They played their game. France got a little bit unlucky, and... Rapino got two good goals in there, and obviously it kind of looked like the U.S. had scored a third. I think Crystal Dunn was a hair offside, maybe. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I think this is where this is why knockout games are so tough to hype so much because it's really just ninety minutes of soccer, and some things go well and some things don't. Um, but yeah, the biggest concern I would say is that uh, it seems like Ellis thinks she can win without Haran, and clearly, theoretically, she's not wrong. But um, she's playing with fire the longer she doesn't play her. Yeah, I, I like Roosevelt a lot for what she brings to this team. I think that her creativity, her willingness to, to dribble and take on back lines and, and her vision is something that not a lot of players bring. And I think every single bit of that is wasted in her own half. And when you're spending so much time in your own half and she's giving up the ball, um, you're yeah, you're playing with your the words we use are correct. She was playing with fire on that. And I think that. You, you've you got to consider the Haran Mewis Ertz midfield. Obviously, you're not going to take out Ertz. I think Sam Mewis has probably been the best U.S. player this World Cup, except for maybe Rapino, as far as consistently from game to game. Um, but let's let's kind of go out to the wings a little bit because yeah. I wanted to talk about Tobin Heath. Sure. And I want to talk about Crystal Dunn. Yeah. Um, because I still, I've kind of been harping on this. I still think Dunn is, is kind of the weakest link in this back line. And, um, I think other teams are, they know that very well and they're hammering her over and over and over. And I want to give a shout out to really to Sam Mewis because I thought she did a lot of defensive work helping cover for Dunn. Now Dunn's got, she's got crazy good speed. We all know that. But so, I mean, you, you think about what she's going to face against England probably bronze in Paris. Like, I don't know that that just being really fast is going to help her out that much. Right. I mean, what, what Dunn did on Friday was she would get beat off the dribble and then make recovery runs that at the very least got in the way enough to slow Diani down um, so that other players could come through to help. And it worked, you know, fine enough. Um, I mean, but also I just think that the chances weren't landing for France. I'm not sure the fact that France only scored one is necessarily indicative of um, a great play, great play out on the wings. And you, you mentioned Tobin Heath, and we saw this against Spain. We saw this against France. I think we'll likely see this against England, that kind of the, um, the side effect of Crystal Dunn being such an obvious point for other teams to attack is that uh, the ball flows through that left side for the U.S. in good ways and in bad ways. Obviously, uh, Megan Rapino got a ton of space on that left side, but it completely nullifies what the U.S. is trying to do on the right side. Tobin Heath's been a complete non-factor for two games now, um, despite obviously kind of, you know, she she was involved in that play that was called offside, but um, it makes it makes the U.S. very easily playable and it's something that they've been able to withstand and honestly still might be able to withstand against England, but it's going to get a lot harder. Yeah. And, and I think too, that the players that Tobin Heath is likely going to be going against for England, which I would say is probably either Alex Greenwood or Demi Stokes and Millie Bright are the weaker side of England's defense, as opposed to Steph Houghton and Lucy Bronze, where Rapino is going to be. So I think that you've, you've got to get Tobin Heath involved. And I think that's, where both Haran and Mewis come in is because they're they're very good at switching the point of the attack and seeing those open spaces when they get the ball. So again, another argument to play Lindsay Haran. I think Haran has to play. Um, Jill Scott is a bruiser in that midfield for England. She's phenomenal. Yeah, she's been she has been commanding so far for them, and I think Lavelle is great. Um, would even maybe think about starting her in a final against a team like the Netherlands or against Sweden. I don't think England is her game. Um, and I don't know. Alice is a big momentum person. And if I, I would think probably Lavelle gets benched for Haran just based on the way Lavelle played. 
and the needs in the semifinal, but I don't know. I have no idea what LS is going to do. I keep thinking she's going to go one way and she goes the other. Well, yeah, that's that's kind of the Jill Ellis thing, whether she's the, the least predictable person sometimes, except for when she really latches onto one of those players she loves and, and plays her regardless of performance, which I don't think is the case here. Well, speaking of, Alex Morgan. Um, yeah. Was... She had a weird game in that I think it's unfair to call her ineffective because she was the one who drew the foul that led to Megan Rapinoe's first goal. Um, and and her off-the-ball movement is some of the best in the world. However, she's not getting opportunities on the ball and hasn't for a while now. Um, and I'm not sure I'm not sure Ellis is willing to give up what she gets off the ball to get a striker in there that might be more likely to actually bag a goal. Yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack here. Like, again, I don't think that Morgan's playing poorly necessarily. You also have to look at uh, the ball she played that led to yeah. um, mm-hmm. Tobin Heath's goal that got called back. Right. I mean, it was a fantastic pass. Um, and again, I, I think that, that her, like as you said, her off-the-ball movement been, has been good, and she's drawing attention from defenders. And, and it's kind of seemed like even in the, the lead-up to the World Cup, they're expecting her to play a little bit more of a withdrawn role right. and let those wingers cut inside and be the ones to kind of attack the goal, and she kind of makes a follow-up. But one thing I noticed is she's not, especially later on in games, she's not dropping back defensively as much as she usually does. Alex Morgan usually does really good defensive work, and I think that kind of gets unnoticed but she's not doing it as much and I, I cannot help but think that there's some sort of nagging injury there I, I mean think, I know that Ellis has said she's fine right. but I just she I, doesn't play 100% I think that something happened um something happened to her ankle there's something that doesn't feel good she had a moment during this game where she went down and she was down for a good what 30 seconds maybe 45 Really yeah, didn't she seem tried sure. To get up and set back down again. Right. It really seems like she's fighting through something. Um, in the U.S. camp, they've been pretty clear. She's fine. She's ready to go. She's playing full nineties, um, and she does have moments where she looks kind of like her old self. But I just, I don't think that she's one hundred percent. I still don't know. I, I, I think Jill Ellis probably thinks that Alex Morgan at, you know, 80% is, is maybe better than the players behind her. I'm not sure I agree with that, um, especially because I do still just think that the U.S.'s fitness is a huge aspect in the way that they play. Uh, I've been surprised how little Kristen Press has played in this tournament, considering how well she has been playing in all of 2019. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of of two minds about that because she hasn't been playing as much. Even when she she is playing, I just, I have not seen from her in this World Cup what we saw from her the entire six months leading up to this. Right. It's just not quite as dynamic. And, and, you know, unfortunately, there is that reputation of her not really coming up to play in these big games. And so that's my question. If you take Morgan out, you either have... You have to depend on press to step up to the plate or that's it. That's your option. You're not going to play Carly Lloyd for back-to-back nineties in the world cup. That's just not going to, something that's going to happen in 2019. Right. Right. And that, that those are your nines. You don't really have, I mean, Pew's a wide player and I don't really think she's, she's ready to kind of take on that role, especially in a semifinal or a final of, of starting. Um, maybe you could play done there and then either put Davidson at left back or put Krieger at right back and then O'Hara at left back. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the tough thing there, I mean, yeah, to talk about the done issue, we saw what Davidson was capable of um, in the U.S.'s second game, but then she hasn't really gotten any time since. I just, I wonder a little bit, I think for better or for worse, it's done at left back. I just don't think that they, even when they had a moment to be able to pivot mid tournament, they decided not to, and I think they're just yeah, I think, with Crystal done. I think this game was their moment. I think if they didn't do it in the quarterfinal against France, knowing that she'd been struggling in the group stage and against Spain, right? They weren't. Yeah, that was their moment. And I think you, you particularly with Davidson, you you don't throw her in there in the semifinal. Nope. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Not against Lucy Bronze, who quite exactly. frankly is my golden ball front runner right now. I think she's been incredible. She has. She has been phenomenal. I think she's going to give that that side some fits. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about France before we kind of wrap up this session real quick, because sure. 
this was supposed to be their, their tournament, you know? And yeah, you can kind of say the luck of the draw. And I've never been one of those to say, oh, it's, it's terrible. This, this quarterfinal should have been a final, like big games are big games. I don't care where they fall, but yeah, it is a little bit devastating for me to see what I thought was their potential. And then once again, Right, not quite live up to it. France's story is a bit weird, and I think it's going to take a little bit of of time to maybe tell it properly. But um, yeah, they it's like they didn't quite like Eugenie Le Sommer had a very disappointing tournament in general. She's I been wonder, non-existent. yeah, I wonder now maybe how she's feeling physically. I know they talked about her having some knocks that she was dealing with going into the tournament. Seems like those were pretty significant. Um, also, France famously made a choice not to bring Marie Antoinette Cototo to this tournament, um, when maybe, you know, Le Sommer could have used some help, and, and I, uh, they also chose not to start Cascarino in this match, when she was the one who annihilated the U.S. in that, um, February friendly, and I... I don't know. I mean, you know, Francis head coach said after the match that she wasn't prepared for the U.S. five back, which I thought was interesting because obviously the U.S. doesn't go to the five back a lot, but they have done that in the last six months. They've specifically brought Juilliards back um, as a, as kind of, you know, and they've sort of um, signaled that that's something that they're that they'll do. And I think they just had a little bit of bad luck. They could have had a handball there at the end. Um, they had some shots that just didn't go down. I, uh, I don't know. I, um, you know, another thing, and and I was talking, I was talking to our colleague Caitlin Best about this, just, just chatting. And I, you know, I think the thing with the U.S., the difference between the U.S. and France is still just the U.S. has this army of soccer players that are able to lock in in the right moment and just gut stuff out. And I know that sounds reductive, but France has, you know, eight maybe world-class soccer players. And that in a different, you know, in an alternate universe is maybe enough to put them through, but they all have to be hitting at the same time. Whereas the U.S. can have some players have kind of a bad game and still figure it out. Well, and one thing I kind of want to toss out there briefly is that a lot of these players play for Lyon. Mm-hmm. And the ones that don't play for probably Paris Saint-Germain or Montpellier, mm-hmm. right? We've, it's, it's kind of a running joke how non-competitive the French League is. Sure. And I kind of wonder if that's... First of all, they're, they're, all, they're coming off a very long season of not right. only the league, but it's not Champions helpful. League. Right, it's not yeah, helpful. Yeah, so... They're worn out, and that we've seen that you know, that's been talked about in the tournament with other European players. But also, I just had to think that winning 10 0 week after week and not getting a competitive match, except for sometimes when you play PSG and you know, when you get to the quarterfinals or the semifinals of the world, the Champions League, depending on your draw, that just I feel like that's just not going to make you all that much better. Yeah, I think that's an interesting, I think that's such an interesting thing to see as, as the next, you know, four, eight, 12 years play out because we've seen this larger narrative with Europe um, as, as they're kind of rising. Um, but I've yet to see something. And I, and I know that the U S might lose on Tuesday. Like I'm, I, I think that they have a good chance of losing on Tuesday, but I've still just yet to see quite the, the flipping of the switch that is that is consistently significantly better than what the U.S. has right now. Well, and I think that the U.S. is kind of an outlier in that too. I think this is there's a very distinct reason that this is such a European focused tournament, and the U.S. is the only right you know non European team. Asian teams, African teams, South American teams are all out and have been out, and we're clearly you know none of them were going to make a deep run really in this tournament. And I think that you have to look at the fact that whether or not the, the leagues are, first of all, that, that Europe, all these countries have leagues. You can't say that about every, right. unfortunately, I don't think you can say that about every, uh, every team in this tournament. They have leagues. They run nearly year round. They have Champions League. They also have the Euros. So they're playing. I mean, there was a lot of talk about how France and Germany, maybe this is probably for the next session, but since we're on it, 
about how you know this is also their Olympic qualifiers and right. they just don't have time for Olympic qualifiers. They're doing a lot of things right. Yeah. So I just I think the U.S. is kind of an outlier in that sort of argument. Yeah, and it's such an interesting thing too because we've seen some we saw some disappointing runs in this tournament. I think New Zealand was very disappointing. Um, Scotland was disappointing. You could you know argue that France is disappointing, but um, or Germany. Uh, I just think you're also you're just going to see and and I did think this going into the quarterfinal. You're going to see some teams underachieve. You have teams who have issues where they don't have domestic leagues. They don't have consistent playing time. Um, yes, a very Eurocentric quarterfinal, but a couple weird bounces, and you have quite a few other teams uh, still playing. Um, Japan came on very strong against the Netherlands there at the end. They were very unlucky um, to have that handball called against them. Um, Brazil took France all the way to the end of that round of 16 game. Um yeah, I just, yeah, I think um, definitely it's indicative of a larger pattern, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm so, I'm so fascinated. I do think, I mean, well, yeah, this is, we're going way off track here, but um, <laughs> the Olympics are super interesting too, because they've always been this tournament that um, all of these teams need to continue their competitive cycles. But for the European teams, that's no longer true. Like you said, the Euros are growing in prestige every single cycle. And it might just turn out that the Olympics turn into this alt, this alt Euro mini tournament for everybody else who doesn't have the regional support to kind of host their own thing. Yeah. And we are, as you said, probably getting a little bit off topic. So we'll come back in the next (laughs) uh, session and talk more about the rest of the, the quarterfinals and um, the rise of or fall of Europe. We'll be right back. Yeah, I think this is the best England we've ever seen at a World Cup. Um, I, I do think that he's, yeah, he's winding them up. He's he's talking to the media. He's apparently very upset about right. hotels. hotels. <laughs> and it's just, it's just not etiquette. Right. So, which any American will tell you is not something we're concerned with. So, I just think it's just, it's, it's amusing to me that, that whole, that part of it. But yeah, I, I think England are quite good. I think this is going to be, I always thought that the, U.S. Germany semifinal in 2015 was the best U.S. match of that tournament, even though the final was nuts. I just thought the semifinal was the best that they played and the best actual game of soccer. And I think that they they could be setting themselves up for another uh, very, very edge of your seat, nail-biting epic semifinal. Yeah, it's going to be intense. Um, yeah, and I do think, and I mean, I, I've said this on Twitter before or whatever, but I do think whoever wins that semifinal has to be the favorite to win the whole thing. Yes, it's funny. I said that about the U.S.-France quarterfinal, actually. Yeah. Before that, I said whoever wins that has is probably going to go on to win it. Now, obviously, this is a another huge jump. And then you still, you can't take the final for granted, regardless of whether it's Sweden or Netherlands. Um, but yeah, this will be interesting. But I guess we'll have to find out well, the next time you hear from us. Um, we'll know. It'll be after the final. Oh, that's right. It'll yeah. be after the final. The final super early Sunday morning. That's crazy. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we'll come back in a minute and we'll, we'll talk about the NWCL just briefly and we'll, we'll get to your questions. Welcome back to episode 66 of the Equalizer podcast. Claire and Chelsea here. We've talked the World Cup to death, um, but there are still NWSL games. So, Claire, Sam Kerr. Yes. Disappointing World Cup. Didn't skip a beat when she came back, did she? Well, that's kind of been the story of the whole weekend. Even before Sam Kerr dropped three on Orlando, Dabinia came back and had a wonderful game for North Carolina. Um Marta was in the starting lineup for Orlando. Uh, Chloe Lagarzo was in the starting lineup for Washington, as was Amy Harrison, but she's a little bit different because she didn't get to see a ton of playing time in the World Cup. Abby Ursag was going to start for North, uh, for North Carolina, but she was a scratch uh, in warm-ups. Um, 
Camilla played for came Cam- on early Camilla, for yeah Camilla Orlando. played for Orlando Ellie Carpenter played for Portland Andresina played for Portland people really just a lot of those teams specifically Brazil and Australia they came right back and they wanted to play which is not uncommon I think probably after you come off a disappointing tournament you want to get right back in the swing of things mentally uh, I worry a little bit about the minutes being put on on these players' bodies, but they most of them seem to maneuver through the weekend okay. Um, yeah, so North Carolina beat Washington, which shouldn't. Which it's it's so funny because obviously that's big news for this season, but also feels incredibly natural if you think about it in the grand scheme of things. Um, Washington Washington had one really bad moment in the back where they gave up a penalty that they shouldn't have given up, and, and that was really the difference. Um, Chicago beat Orlando, which was good for Chicago. It was their first win um, in a long time, but Chicago is a mess right now. That was a mess of a game. Orlando's really struggling, and Chicago played down to that level and, and didn't look a lot better than they have the last three weeks, but they've just got Sam Kerr, so what can you do? Um Portland turned nothing into a win against Houston. They hadn't, they didn't look even close to score until you hit the 60th minute and they got two. Kaya Simon also played in that game and she got a goal, which was awesome to see. But um, Houston just fell apart at the end of that game, which is, that's not great for them. You know, they'll have their Canadians coming back soon, but you wonder if they're really a, a real contender for the top four. Yeah, that kind of what to me was kind of vintage Houston. We we haven't seen that really much as much this season, but that sort of late game falling apart, that was something that was their their hallmark in yep. in previous seasons. So it's it's not quite gone. I do wanna point out a few notes. Um Houston currently in seventh place on the longest uh winless streak uh besides Sky Blue. Um Portland took first place with their, their win. Right. Um North Carolina still in fifth place. Yeah. Well, the rain, and the rain got the another rain, win. Yeah. I was going to say they, they started so slow and we were really concerned right. about them and then they've worked their way up to third place. Yeah. Uh, the rain, the poor rain, they have had so many injuries this year. Um, obviously they also have a lot of players who will be coming back soon from international duty, but just the season ending injuries that they've had and getting Jess Fishlock back. She's been worth, eight points for them she's been nuts something crazy and she, like I've, and she went down in that game and it looks like it was probably pretty serious um, yeah she had to be stretchered off so does right. not and that's just Michelle, who is generally a very very tough player so that right. doesn't uh it's so it doesn't bode well for so her. if she's out for a long period of time that's a huge blow for them um they honestly they have to pray that megan rapino comes back healthy because that's got to be huge for them um so, yeah, it's all kind of a mess right now because, you know, Washington has been very good, but the question is now can they hold on to that form once everyone else comes back? You know, maybe they get overrun by just the talent that they don't quite have at the top end. Um, Chicago, obviously, they're kind of back in the swing of it, but they don't look good. Um, the Dash are fading. Utah uh, wasn't able to make it happen this week. Uh, they're another team that it's really hard to tell right now exactly where they fit in in the hierarchy of the league. Um, and then you kind of have your mainstays. You have Portland. Portland looks great. They've really figured out this break um, without a lot of their players. They just kind of went back mm-hmm. to very basic soccer and have made it work for them. Mitch Purse has been wonderful for them. Uh, the rain look very good, but obviously they have some trouble ahead. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and it's interesting too to me as I had pulled up the the uh, table to give you some standings that only six points separates right. Portland in first place and Houston in seventh place. Like, yeah. is and you know we saw the really the last two seasons North Carolina just run away with the shield. So this is something we haven't had since probably honestly 2016, where it's been this really close. Yeah race and, which of, is, of just is, constantly changing yeah and that's great i think that's what we were all hoping for we were hoping that for the sure. world cup would kind of shock some parody into the league and it's definitely done that a lot of different things we're at about the halfway point next week is the halfway point and i feel like a million different things could happen i mean yeah it's crazy to look at it you you've got two of the you know the, the reigning championship winner and then chicago who's been in the playoffs for what four seasons straight mm-hmm. now um 
they're not in playoff position. Washington, which spent the last two seasons in last place, is now in second. Utah's on their, only their second season of existence has climbed up to um, a spot. You know, Houston could could be right back up in there with a win or two. It, it's it's a nuts table. That, that's great. Yeah. So yeah, it's really interesting. Um, oh, other major piece of news: Denise Reddy is gone. As oh. Sky Blue. It tells you how much the world is consuming <laughs> us that we left that till the last minute. Yeah. Uh, I mean, losing to Orlando, I I don't know if that was the last straw, but it certainly seems like it warrants it, perhaps. I mean, yeah, when you have one win in, what, a season and a half, I don't know exactly how many right. games that is, 34 maybe, doing some quick math, I could be wrong. Um, they don't... Players are still, you know, you had the McCaskill trade to Chicago. You, you've still got players who are requesting trades. Um, you've got draftees who are refusing to go. Like, some of that, yes, is the off-the-field shit. Um, but it just doesn't seem like it's, it's a destination for anyone. And then the players are not playing good soccer. They don't look happy. Right. Um the only notable acquisition really that is Gina Lewandowski and she's I think from New Jersey right so you have to kind of consider that um they're just a mess yeah it seems it seems yeah I don't know what happens they're another team I don't know what happens now um I have to assume they'll have an interim for a while. Yeah, they didn't even they didn't even announce who was going to. I'm assuming they, yeah, the assistant. I don't think they put out a, over. I don't think they put out a press release. I think they just tweeted. They put it. out a tweet. Yes, yeah. that's correct. Which yeah. is something, but not uh-huh. neither here nor there. Okay, um, and uh, we'll get into your questions now. As always, don't forget to use hashtag EQZPod, so we'll make sure not to miss it. Um, let's see, Tom Stidman says, should the NWSL take a longer break during the next Women's World Cup? Why or why not? Attendance and excitement is down because of Women's World Cup. I I would like them to, in theory, because there is a whole lot of soccer going on right now, and you can only keep up with so much. And uh, you're absolutely correct. Attendance and excitement is down. Nobody's talking about the NWSL. Attendance is, it seems to be down in most places. The downside to that is what do you do? You can only start the season so early. You can only make it go so long. And God knows we hate midweek games. So it's kind of a, what do you give up to make that happen? Right. Um, Yeah, this is a larger issue. Yes, I would like the NWSL to take a longer break, maybe one more weekend. Um, I think that the... I think that fall in American sports is a very crowded time. I think you have a lot of sports going on during that period, and I think that probably they're reluctant to go too late. Um, The issue, I think, is less about the break and more just about what's not happening here during this time, what opportunities are not um, being, you know, pursued or announced and... um, I know that the teams like the teams are doing their best. I know Chicago has, I can only say what I've seen here. I know they're doing the best that they can to try to grab some of that market. But, um, you know, the crazy thing to me about the NWSL is that the soccer is so good and the players who play here are so good. And it's remarkable to me that that isn't enough, that that doesn't translate, that someone like Marta can have, this giant viral moment on the world stage and have that translate to nothing in Orlando. I don't understand exactly why that's happening. Yeah. As you said, it's kind of probably part of a larger discussion. Right. Um, So Gam, (laughs) Gam Natram says, what's the youth GK development pipeline? Is it random? Um, There's no specific GK development pipeline. It's as far as I know, it's the same as, the only the thing, rest. the only thing I will say though, is that Casey Murphy looks really good, really good that year in France. Really I mean, she was good. good, a good youth international always. Right. She was always, she's been 
tottered for a while to be on the senior yeah. level, but that year in France did her some really she's good. She's been incredible, and I really, really hope that once this cycle is over, she's in the in in you know camp because she yeah I can't it. yeah I can't imagine um, with likely some retirements coming up that that right. personally GKs isn't thrown wide open. I would would love to have one of those huge GK camps that they've had in the past. Yeah, if we have some some very good young talent. Yeah. And the issue right now is that obviously AD French is incredible, but she's not young. And that is something that this, you can't, you gotta, you gotta be looking at goalkeepers 25 and under right now. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what made like Bryce Gary and hope solo. So good as they were identified very, very young, right. Got into the program very, very young and, and kind of they, they built them up while they still had other starters ahead of them. And that's what you need to do with a goalkeeper. And sometimes it's just unfortunate um, that your age just falls to where that's not, not doesn't happen for you. But yeah, I think that they need, yeah, they need to look at those, those young ones, but yeah, the pipeline is, is the same for, for anyone else, you know, ideally in the eyes of us soccer, it's development Academy, NCAA slash youth slash youth international teams. NWSL senior team. Right. Ideally, um, ideally in the eyes of Claire Watkins, it's we get NWSL <laughs> expansion and more jobs for goalkeepers in this country because there are a lot of really good ones and they should be getting professional reps. Yeah. Yeah, there are. It's 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 so hard. Yeah. And if you don't that's another reason to kind of look young because if you don't get in on the ground floor yeah. early, right. You're kind of just gonna be stuck in a backup job or overseas and neither of which are ideal for getting on the US Women's national team. And one more, um, Gallum Cardiner says, do you think Christine Sinclair will play at the 2023 World Cup? She's played on a high into her late 30s. I don't, don't think she's quite late 30s yet. I think she's mid-30s. Um, anyway, so it doesn't seem out of the question. Also, what scenarios in the World Cup do you see leading to Jill Ellis' exit as the coach of the U.S. Women's National Team? Who takes over in your dreams? Gallum. That's that's a whole lot to unpack there, buddy. Uh, well, okay. So Christine Sinclair, <laughs> Christine Sinclair just turned thirty six. I think yeah, this was. I think this was probably her last World Cup. I agree. Uh, yeah, it's unfortunate. It but just particularly is the way they is. went out. But. Yeah, she'll play. She'll play in the Olympics next year for sure. Um, and might continue on for Portland for however long. But I just think. You Four years is a big ask. It's a big ask, um, in especially Canada, in her position. Exactly. Um, uh, what was the What was the second question? What scenarios in the World Cup do ah, you see leading yes. to Jill Ellis' exit? Um, it's at this past. Point? It's past. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, um, she will. Here's what I think is going to happen. I think she's going to coach through this World Cup. I think she's going to coach through next year's Olympics, and then probably I think. And this is pure speculation, but I think it's likely that maybe there will be a mutual parting of the ways sometimes for the next cycle just because she might want to do something else. Oh, 100%. I've, yeah. I've said that for a long time. I, I could I would put money on the fact that her contract extension was through 2020 Olympics and then that's it. And I think that they probably both want it that way. The U.S. soccer has not kept a coach for longer than a cycle or two. And right. And probably since like Tony DiCicco, he was on there for quite some time. I wouldn't be shocked um, if she didn't eventually move into a position like the GM role. I If she still wants to keep working in U.S. soccer, I think that that avenue is open. But yeah, I just don't think she's going to be the coach forever. Well, yeah. And I mean, that's got to be it, it's, you know, probably the, the highest of of the jobs as far as like the prestige and and where you want to go in women's soccer. I mean, it's the, the highest achieving team yeah. in women's soccer history. Um but it's also probably an incredibly thankless job. Right. Yeah. And incredibly stressful. She sure. doesn't get to spend a lot of time with her family. She's got a, a daughter. She has a child. Right. Um, I, yeah, I can't imagine she wants to do this forever. Um, and, the, um, and the obvious, clear and obvious answer would be Vladko Andonovsky for her successor. But I don't think that's ever going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Yeah, I I don't know. I have, I've heard a lot of names thrown around and yeah. I've, I've declined all of them. Um. Paul Riley, I've, I've said no. I don't. I don't think so. Um, various previous players, I've said no. I don't know who it is, but um, 
I'm sure when the time comes, we'll start hearing some yeah. some more serious obviously, names. Obviously, this is a conversation for a later day, but clearly the U.S. job, there are two jobs. You have to be able to do tactics on the field, and you also be, have, be, have to be able to manage some of the most popular and the most successful soccer players in the world. And those are jobs that not every club coach can do. Um, so, oh, yeah, yeah. The national team is completely different. It's totally different. And vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. so... Who knows? But anyway, no, she's never she's never getting fired, I don't think. Yeah, no, at this point, it would have to take in like a group stage exit. Right. For her, maybe round of 16, although even then, I, I doubt it. Um, when you, you you have the worst loss in uh, U.S. history in the, in the Olympics in any major tournament, and you still stay on, um, when you have the earliest exit in a major tournament, and you still stay on for the next World Cup, you're not going anywhere. Yep. Well, I, I do think if they had lost this quarterfinal, she would not necessarily be the head coach for the Olympics, but that didn't happen, so. Hmm, interesting. I'm not sure I agree. Yeah. But. Who knows? All right. Yeah. We'll never know. <laughs> Thankfully, that is not something we have to find out right now. Whether yep. or not you, you like Jill Ellis, it's not worth sacrificing the entire team to get rid of her. Right. So. All right, well, this has been episode 66 of the Equalizer Podcast. As Claire pointed out earlier, next time you hear from us, someone will win the World Cup. We don't know who. So, see, catch on the flip side. England's whole vibe, and we've seen this a little bit too with the way Phil Neville has been managing the last couple of days. He's kind of a John Herdman type, where he likes to <laughs> he likes to kind of dig at the U.S. for little things and and you know drum up stories a little bit. And he's de- or kind of a Paul Riley sort of a guy, where like he's really setting up this narrative for his team. Um, that they're just going to go give it to the world's number one. Um, and it might, it might work. I don't know. I think England's had a very, they've been on edge this whole tournament. There's been a very frenzied sort of vibe to them from day one. So I'm really interested to see what happens. Welcome back to episode 66 of the Equalizer podcast. Uh, before Claire comes back, um, this week's fbref.com stat of the week is that the France and U.S. quarterfinal marked the very first time that the World Cup defending champion has played the host nation in a knockout round game of the World Cup, which took me a little bit by surprise. Um, But there you have it. U.S. versus France made history in a number of ways. Um, But we've talked that game kind of to death. (laughs) There are three three other uh, matches that took place that we need to discuss. And that is Sweden advancing over Germany, 2-1. to one. England dealing with Norway pretty handily, 3-0. to zero. And Netherlands ending at least kind of Cinderella run, 2 nothing. Claire, have at it. Which one do you want to talk about first? Um, well, okay, so let's start. Before we, before we go back to the U.S.'s side of the bracket, maybe let's talk about the other side, um, since we've already talked a bit about England. Um, so both of those games were played on Saturday. They were both played in a record-setting heat wave early in the day. Um, all four teams looked like they were dying out there. Uh, so that was kind of hard to watch. Um, uh, let's start with Italy-Netherlands. Um, Italy had a really tough time in that second half dealing with the heat. Uh, the Netherlands are so fun to me. I love the Netherlands. They um, Their offensive trio... <laughs> With Shanice Van de Sanden just gunning on the wings at all times and sending these crazy crosses in. And then you've got Martins on the left side um, trying to make things happen. And then you've got Miedema in the middle. Um, I don't know. They're very fun to me. I think um, they keep running out the same front six. They don't sub a lot. And they have not rotated very much. And you keep waiting for it to bite them. But it hasn't. And um, outside of that Japan game, they look pretty fun and pretty good. Uh, so I like them a lot. I like Italy a lot, too. Uh, hats off to Italy. They just couldn't quite hang. 
which which makes sense. Yeah, and even their coach said this kind of exceeded right. their expectations for this World Cup, just getting to that match. Um, I like the Netherlands. I've, like many people, kind of fell in love with them at the Euros in 2017. They're a lot of fun to watch. They play a very exciting style of soccer, and their crowds are probably the best I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think they've benefited a little bit from maybe a luckier part of the bracket oh, than some absolutely i, I and, don't necessarily think they're one of the, the fourth best team or you know one of the four best teams in this well, tournament but quite frankly, that's the tournament they should have lost to japan i that game was an outlier that one you know that was a handball call that should have could have been called against the u.s in that france game and wasn't you know it seemed like a little bit on the whim of of the officials and japan was coming on really strong in the second half of that round of 16 games so um, I love the Netherlands. I think they're there by a little bit of a stroke of luck. Yeah, which, I mean, everybody has to get a stroke of luck, right, to get to this point. We saw that with the U.S. in 2015. You know, we said France was a little bit unlucky in the last match. The U.S. was probably a little bit lucky in, in the uh, the match against Spain with their uh, second penalty. Right. Um, I, I liked it. Like I said, I liked the Netherlands a lot, but I look at them and I just think, think that they're very predictable. And I think if you slow them down, mm-hmm. which I think Sweden is absolutely going to do, if you slow them down, that they're not going to know kind of what to do. Now, Minima is in particular, I think is very special. I think that she's just phenomenal. Yeah. And she's, she's kind of like, you know, Sam Kerr in the NWSL. Yeah. She, she gets her foot on the ball. She's probably going to make something happen with about five seconds of time and space. Um, Martins, I think has slowed down a bit. I don't, I think that going to, to Barcelona has not quite upped her development as much as I would have thought. Um, Vanda Sanden, I like, I think she does what she does very well, but I think that that's all she does. Yes. You right. know, when she gets the ball every time she's going to, she's it's going a little wide. bit like a, She's going wide. It's a little bit like like vintage Heather O'Reilly. Yeah. She's going to kick it around you. She's going to throw in that engine, you know, yep. shift down to, to another gear and go around you and then bing in a cross. Now, she's very fast. She has very good crosses. She does what she does very well, but right. that's all she does. She's never going to cut inside. Yeah, I know. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I wish she would. I think they'd be better if she cut inside every once in a while. But, yeah, um, it's just, it makes it a little bit too predictable. Yeah. So I think that that Sweden is just Sweden's been fascinating to watch for me because I, I think that their their tactics just the way they look at yeah and pinpoint their weaknesses they've had a very funny tournament they were not good against Chile in their opening match um they quite frankly got saved by that rainstorm um they were not going to score they were going to draw that nil nil I swear um and then they, you know, they had kind of the normal Thailand game against Thailand. And then against the U.S., they uh, sat a bunch of their starters, which is like, it's so, it's, it's what you call it, it's like the galaxy brain move. Because if they do play the U.S. again in the final, it will not be the same team that played oh, them in the group stage. Which is like, how can you even plan for that? But somehow Sweden did. Um, like they were absolutely did not, they were advancing that regardless. They didn't care right. if they won that match. No. And it's just so, I think for us, because it's such an American mindset, like you have to keep winning. You have to keep momentum up. You're going to go out and destroy every single opponent. Like the U S is just like this, this dog that just runs through everything to get to that ball. Right. Whereas Sweden is more of like a cat. Right. Yeah. Like, they've been very smart. They're very smart about it. They're probably, you know, they're going to get the ball too, but they'll yeah. wait a little bit. Right. And, you know, I, I think Sweden's been quite good. I think Lindahl had a great game against Germany after having kind of some questionable moments earlier. Um, Germany, though, I don't, they, out of everybody, they might, they might be my most disappointing team. Um and I know that they were hurt. Obviously, Marazan had another tough tournament. Um, but they didn't necessarily react with a ton of urgency and just complete and total breakdown in the back, which a lot of these teams are capable of. The U.S. is capable of that. So are England and so are the Netherlands, but and Sweden for that matter. But Germany just played the first really tough game of their whole tournament and just sort of folded. Yeah, they're, it's funny, if you look at, first of all, it's a very young roster, but it's also a very inexperienced roster, mm-hmm. especially when you look at their players. Like, right. these are not, 
These are, are very young, very inexperienced players, especially on defense. The ones that are actually in the starting 11 normally. So I, I think it was never going to, you know, go all that well for them in this tournament. They, um, when I did my bracket for the knockout round, I actually thought they could go pretty far, but just because they, again, were on the, a little bit of an easier side of, it was a pretty lopsided bracket, to be honest. Right. Um, but Marijan, I think she's one of the best players in the world. We've I've talked about this in the podcast multiple times. She just has yet, for a variety of reasons, owned a major tournament. And I liked some of what they did without her. Actually, I think the switching in formation was good. But you look at this game, they they played um, Alex Pop yeah. and Sarah Day Britt's deep for their distribution, which was kind of something. But they're playing them on top of two very you know, struggling center backs. Yeah. And I thought that that was a mistake. I thought that they should have played Melanie LaPoltz back there. I think she has a, a much more defensive presence and can kind of sit on top of that back line and, and absorb a little bit of the pressure that's coming and spot some of those breakaway runs. And so that was just kind of, it was one of those things where it's like, okay, I can see what you're trying to do, but you're not catching the flip side of it. And the flip side is what's doomed them because they were running at the heart of their defense all game long. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't think, I just, I don't know. I think they just didn't expect Sweden to give them quite the run that they did. Um, this was another game too, where Sweden was pretty physical and Germany kind of let them get in their heads a little bit. Um, yeah, I don't know. There was, well, we saw that in Germany's very first game against right, China. Against like, they China. were not prepared for physicality. Right. And, you know, you can, you know, obviously there are arguments to be made against that as a tactic. It doesn't make for beautiful soccer a lot of the times. But in these knockout rounds, you got to be prepared for your team, for the team that's playing against you to kind of do what they're going to do. And it just seemed like Germany was reacting a lot. And then when they did have the ball, they didn't have a ton of ideas. And, you know, I, I keep, the flip side is I just keep thinking about like, what if the U S had had a a tournament the way Germany did? And if the U S had had Germany's tournament, everything would have melted down. (laughs) Um, which is maybe unfair because it is a different kind of a roster. It's, it is very young. Um, but I don't know. It's a new coach. I I'm fascinated to see what happens for Germany now. Yeah, like I, I think this just was not their cycle. I, I think that the coaching yeah. struggles under you know, the issues they had under Jones and then the late coaching change. I think that their roster is young, and I think they still lack. I just don't think Pop is going to be your out and out ruthless, you know, number nine type striker. I think they need someone who's going to put up more goals yeah. than than what she's going to do. Yeah, I'm fascinated to see how they do in the Euros. Yeah, yeah, and um. Yeah, we we talked a little bit about England, but yes. Norway. Watching that game, I, just, <sighs> Norway, I thought Norway was out of gas. They did nothing, right? Like that's the thing about this whole setup for for England is is England played incredibly well in that game, but Norway gave them a ton of time on the ball. They were not challenging physically. Quite like Norway could have had a couple of really good shots that they just refused to take. Um, yeah, I, just, I think Norway, Norway gave uh, Australia yeah. everything they had. Yep. And had nothing left. I agree. So it is. It's it's hard to tell. A huge confidence booster, obviously, for England. Um, the U.S. are not going to give them the amount of space they got against Norway. But, you know, as it comes to the trajectory of their tournament, they, right place, right time. Yeah, that Norway game went great for them. Yeah, I just, I, I keep looking at that England and U.S. matchup, but I just think that's going to be the most insane balls to the wall match of this tournament yeah yeah it's it's gonna be nuts england 